0: And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I am delighted to be able to welcome back to the uh, to the program today Nan Calvert, paying her monthly visit to the morning show. She is from Root Pike Wynn, and she always brings along someone uh, equally interesting with which we can engage uh, in a conversation about something related to the natural world and/or the environment and our place in it. And Nan has chosen something really out of the ordinary today in terms (laughs) of a topic. So first of all, Nan, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you so much, Greg.
0: So uh, tell our listeners the topic that you chose and the guests that you chose to explore it.
1: (laughs) You know, I was thinking about shows we've done in the past, and I thought, you know, we have never done a show really about... Lichens and fungus, and it's those two living things are not something most people know much about, and I think that the vast majority of people aren't really even aware of what a lichen is, or even how to pronounce it. You know, of course, people think it's lichen, but it, <laughs> but it's lichen, and so I started hunting around to find out if we could do a program like that. And I happened upon our guest today, Kathleen, um, and I uh, was connected with her and um, through her email, she seems like a very uh, passionate uh, advocate and um, expert about lichens and fungi. And I thought this is just great because she can do one show about lichens and then she can do another show about and I, this is a term I just learned, non lichenized fungi. Isn't that great? <laughs> and so, yes, so that's why we're doing this today.
0: So our other guest today, then, is Kathleen Thompson, who is a fourth-year botany PhD student uh, at UW-Madison. Uh, she earned her master's degree in ecology and evolutionary biology from Iowa State University studying uh, lichen diversity. And uh, and yes, her uh, current work at UW is focusing with non-lichenized fungi and uh, mm-hmm. other things that I can't begin to pronounce uh, or <laughs> understand even what they are, but that's what uh, we're going to be spending the next few minutes talking about. Kathleen Thompson, we welcome you to the morning show.
2: Oh, thank you so much. It is is my pleasure to be here and I feel honored to be invited. So thank you.
0: Before we get specifically to lichens and your love of lichens, uh, let's find out a little bit about where you come from originally and maybe kind of your life's path, which ultimately led you to what you are uh, now exploring.
1: Absolutely
2: yes. Um, so I grew up in Iowa, um, so not too not too far from Wisconsin here. Um, and you know, if you would have told me as a as a younger child or even a younger adult that I would end up studying even fungi for the rest of my life, I probably would have looked at you with a little bit of incredulity of like, no, that's that's not where I'm going to end up here. But um, but it's actually. I, when I found this path, it was the it's the perfect fit for me, no doubt. Once I once I realized that, so I did my undergraduate at Iowa State University as a biology major, um, and I was really interested in pre med at the time. Um, but somewhere throughout there, I sort of did a did a flip, and all of a sudden was taking plant courses that I was really interested in, um, and that led me to taking a course on lichens and bryophytes. So bryophytes being like mosses and liverworts and tiny little uh, non. Yeah, I wanted to take that course, but I heard that there were a lot of field trips and not a lot of exams. And I thought, oh, yeah, that sounds like something I'm interested in. So uh, but once I took that course and I saw these organisms under a microscope, I immediately fell in love and was very captured by them. Um, The next year I helped TA the course uh, with Dr. Jim Colbert and eventually took some years off in between there, but came back to do my master's with uh, Dr. Colbert studying lichen diversity.
0: Wonderful. By the way, since I'm originally from Iowa, I'm curious very specifically where you're from.
2: Oh, absolutely. I grew up in Fort Dodge, Iowa, so kind of in the central, north central part of the state, uh, but then lived in Ames for for 10 years doing my undergrad and master's and things as well. Where are you from in Iowa? Uh,
0: I went to, I grew up in Decorah up in the northeast corner, but then I, after that, was down in Atlantic, which is right between Des Moines and Omaha, so almost straight south of Fort Dodge, if I recall and I've yes. been with a million times. So anyway, it's always nice to talk to an Iowan from the land where the tall corn grows. So this is great. <laughs> so speaking of tall corn and other plants, uh, of course, one of the intriguing things about most of what we're gonna talk about today is that we're talking about things that at a careless glance sort of look like plants, even though probably a lot of us know that these things aren't plants, but it sort of feels like they're plants. And And something like moss, really does look like a plant. I mean, I think uh, it doesn't have to be a careless glance to make that, that mistake. Maybe as just kind of an overarching thing, could you help us understand the difference between a plant and all of these other things that sort of look like plants but aren't plants?
2: Yes, yes, Greg, that's an an excellent question and a great way to start us off, actually, because even when I was thinking like, what are the three things that I would want sort of listeners to leave with after this is one of them is being like, what is a lichen? And part of that is that lichens are not plants, um, which can be kind of a surprising, surprising aspect. Even some people listening might be surprised to find out that fungi are not plants. Um, If we were talking, if we were in a botany class, say 50 years ago or something, we would be talking about fungi in general as seedless plants. Um, so, so there's been, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of big changes in the relatively recent future or recent past, excuse me. Um, lichens, yes, they do look a lot like plants, especially if we're comparing to thing like things like mosses, which actually are plants. Um, so, so what is this distinction here? Um, lichens are essentially organisms that are composed of a fungal component, um, But what makes them unique is that they've also incorporated some kind of photosynthetic organism into their body. So most lichens contain a green algae inside their body, but some can also contain a special bacteria called cyanobacteria that photosynthesize. So they're doing a lot of similar things to plants, as in they're sort of in-house performing photosynthesis, um, and that's where they're getting their sugars and food and carbon. Um, But instead of it being from chlorophyll, that's part of the actual cells of that organism, they've kind of outsourced that that, um, phenomenon, if you will, and incorporated it into their body through the use of of green algae. Um, So they look a lot like plants and they'll turn green when they're properly hydrated and things as well. Uh, But really they're actually this unique composite organism between sort of a plant-like organism, uh, green algae, or even cyanobacteria. but, But most of the body is actually comprised of fungus. Now you mentioned mosses and this is where it gets a little confusing because sometimes people who study lichens also are very interested in mosses and other things mostly because they grow in the same areas and so you're looking at both very closely and it's a similar skill set. But mosses are actually small plants, so they are related to some of the larger plants that you would see, um, but but they're actually quite different, different organisms, even though they can look quite similar.
0: Interesting. So I think I was mixing up mosses with ferns because ferns look like plants, but I think ferns are not plants. Is that right?
2: Ferns are plants. Yes. And they actually kind of lie between sort of like, like flowering plants and trees that have this, this nice um, conductive tissue in a way like xylem and phloem. They're kind of in the evolutionary stages between like mosses and liverworts and things like our flowering plants and gymnosperms like coniferous trees. So they're kind of in some of that, like in this evolutionary I want to say transition stage, but not that the, everything is moving up this, but sort of as you look through time, we've had these transitions in plants and they're kind of right in between there. So. Gotcha.
0: Well, I'm glad you're blowing up all these mistaken uh, assumptions I'm <laughs> making. So this is good. It's probably good for our listeners as well. For those of you just joining us on today's morning show, we are talking especially about lichens, but about other kind of similar ancillary organisms as well. Uh, with Kathleen Thompson, who has been invited to the morning show by uh, Nan Calvert, and this is Nan's monthly visit uh, to to the morning show. Um, Nan, before we explore a little further, I, I'd love to have you kind of expand on, on why you were intrigued by this particular topic, aside from the fact that we've never talked about it, but uh, the fact that lichens are, uh, I assume, kind of a bigger player in the natural world than a lot of us really assume.
1: Yeah, we tend to overlook them because they aren't big and showy like some native plant species are. And, you know, I, I think many people are familiar with the fact that I did environmental education with school-age kids for more than a couple of decades And I would always take a moment to point out lichens uh, because um, they're they're just so fascinating for one. People don't think they're alive, but also they come in such a rainbow of colors. Um, And it's important to point these things out to people, these little tiny things, because of course, when you become aware of things in the natural world and begin to really see them then you can begin to appreciate them and, and you know, come to love and respect and, and take care of them. And also um, sort of in the art world, species of lichens have been used for a long time to produce dyes um, and, uh, and people still do that. And I can't imagine you know, sort of how laborious it would be collecting a specific lichen to create a, a particular color, you must have to have uh, quite an, a large amount of it. I don't know too much about it. I just know that people do use them, even in modern times, for uh, coloring fibers and whatnot. So you know, it, it's a it's a whole fascinating um, um, segment of life that most of us, you know, in our workaday world, we don't notice it. We don't know anything about it, uh, but but it's just Fascinating. The more and more you dive into the plant world and their allies, if you will, it just becomes more and more fascinating.
0: So Kathleen Thompson, uh, as we explore now lichens, we have to have a better understanding of what fungi are or what a fungus is. Now, that's probably one of the things we understand the least of everything that we're going to be talking about today. So please help us understand what a fungus is and then remind us of the connection between fungi and lichens.
2: Absolutely, yes, that's another great question here. Um, So fungi are essentially a category. Um, If you're into scientific terms, they're a phylum of organisms, or excuse me, a kingdom of organisms. Uh, But they're they're a category of, of biological life of organisms that's at the similar level of animals and plants. Um so like I had previously said we used to think of fungi as being sort of part of plants as these seedless plants but but really we've known for quite a long time that they're not um for a variety of reasons but molecular like DNA information being one of the strong ones that's really separated that so so they're a category of organisms and and they essentially do things differently than plants and organisms or plants and animals excuse me um they tend to have chitin in their cell walls which is something that that brings them together. They reproduce by spores. So they have some morphological characters that bring them together. um, But, but also through this DNA evidence makes them sort of a group in and of themselves. And something else that people tend to find surprising is actually that fungi are more closely related to animals than they are to plants or certainly to bacteria, which sometimes can, um, is something else that people think. So we used to, Talk about them as plants, but actually they're far more closely related to, to us as humans than they are to, to any plants that exist out there, which is kind of wild. Um,
0: I, I I suppose that's because they, at least as far as I know, are largely immobile, like most plants largely are immobile versus animals and humans who tend to walk around. So what would be one or two of the traits that that uh, fungi share with with animals, for instance?
2: Yeah, good question. Um, One of them, I think probably one of the ones that comes to mind uh, first for me is the way that they get their food. So there's something that scientists would call heterotrophs, hetero meaning different and troph meaning how they obtain their nutrition. Basically, fungi have to eat other organisms to get their food, just like we do, like we eat plants or other animals to obtain our nutrition. And that's what fungi are doing. So when you see mushrooms or little fungal fruiting bodies growing out of a log or out of the ground. They're either digesting those wood cells or getting some kind of nutrients from underground, whether that be from the soil and decaying plant matter or from plant roots that are exuding sugars or trading sugars um, with these fungi, but they're getting their nutrition from somewhere else. They also tend to store sugars, I believe, very similarly to animals do. Um, and But yes, it's, it's that common kind of idea is like they're growing with plants, they tend to be non moving, you know, they act kind of like a plant from our animal perception, they're not running around hunting around in that way. Um, but that also brings up another excellent point about fungi which oftentimes uh, isn't thought about is that, when we see a fungus usually what we're seeing is the above ground portion or the above if it's growing on a log, it's whatever's at the surface. And really we're not seeing even the largest body of the fungus itself. So. Fungi are usually they're in this filamentous life form. So basically their main body looks like a series of strings or cotton almost in a way, kind of like what you would see growing on your strawberries if you left them in the back of the refrigerator too long. So that's kind of the main body of the fungus. When we see a mushroom growing out of the ground, that's when it's decided it's time to reproduce. It has adequate energy. The conditions are right. And it's going to create what we still refer to sometimes as a fruiting body, which is kind of a holdover from the botanical days. But it's decided that it's going to reproduce and, and pop up a mushroom. Right. So we tend to, to see that mushroom and think, ah, that's the entire fungus. There it is. But really, that's just a very small part of this extensive body of cells that's underground or within this rotting log or whatever substrate it's growing on. So, um When we're talking about, you know, misconceptions of things around fungi and especially lichens as well, it's just riddled with a lot of these kind of um, complexities that we don't see every day.
0: Right. So, for instance, when we see a lichen on a log, we tend to think of just what we see that's on the surface of the log. And we don't think about something that's actually penetrating into the log and ultimately, I suppose, consuming the log. Uh, Yeah. And with lichens, it's a little bit different.
2: Yeah. it With lichens, it's a little bit different because so where lichens are getting their food source from is from these algae or the cyanobacteria that are incorporated into its body. So instead of it needing this vast amount of cells within its substrate to eat that substrate, it actually is a pretty self-contained system there. So it may have cells that hold it onto its substrate, but for the most part, you know, let go of that need of extensive what we call hyphae, which are these cells that penetrate into the decaying wood or whatever. Um, And it basically just focuses on, in some ways, farming this algae that it has inside its body. So it's kind of similar in some ways, I think, to like doing almost like hydroponic gardening at home, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're tending to these plants and you're you're making sure that they have these nice adequate conditions, but really you have this goal of like harvesting the fruits and whatever sort of carbon sources they're going to make. So it's basically a different strategy of getting food instead of all these enzymes that can break down wood and everything they've specialized in sort of providing a suitable habitat for green algae that we used to always think of as being a mutualistic relationship where this was really positive for both partners. There's a lot of evidence, though, that really it's a fungus that's sort of parasitizing these algae in a way, very similar to this like hydroponic gardening example, where you know you're giving these plants this lovely setup in your house with these ambient temperature, what that temperature dial is set at. Are they getting water? Are they getting nutrients? So there's this kind of um, control that it exerts over the algae, actually, in a way.
1: And then is it the same kind of a relationship with the bacteria? Are they parasitizing the bacteria or is the other way around? This is fascinating.
2: Yeah. When you say bacteria, are you talking about the cyanobacteria yeah. partners? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So it'd be, it'd be pretty much the same example, right? Where they're, they are maybe providing this sort of like suitable home, like structure, if you will, that, that protects them from some UV rays and tries to make sure they don't dry out too much um, in terms of the cyanobacteria, but, but really they're controlling um, kind of their access to light and moisture and things as well. They're controlling their reproductive, so many things about them. And they're essentially there to harvest uh, whatever carbon they're making, um, kind of keep them alive, but they're, they're taking the sugar. And how do migans
1: reproduce, Kathleen?
2: Oh gosh. Great question. Lots of, lots of excellent questions here. And I am always so excited to talk about these that I hope I'm not getting a little too excited here that it's hard to understand. Um, so lichens reproduce in a really interesting way, which makes them just, you know, they continue to baffle us, uh, in so many ways, but, so lichens can reproduce asexually where little bits of their, of their body can fall off and actually become a new lichen, or they produce little tiny packets actually that have some of those fungal hyphal cells. Um, along with a green algae cell or a cyanobacterial cell. And they send these little packets off. So all the partners are sort of there to to make a new lichen. Um, But they can actually reproduce sexually as well. But that's where things get pretty interesting because it's only the fungal component that can sort of sexually reproduce in that way. So it produces fungal spores just like any other fungus would, like when you see spores coming off a mushroom, it produces spores like that. But then those spores have to find a new suitable habitat and they have to find the appropriate um, algal or cyanobacterial partners, or at least someone that they can form that close association with um, to remake a brand new lichen. So, and I think that's why we see in lichens that a lot of them do have ways to reproduce asexually, um, but it certainly are different strategies and every lichen seems to do it a little bit differently depending on if they reproduce asexually and how they do that. How often do they reproduce sexually? And that might depend maybe what partners they can associate with and how common those partners are. So in short, it's a it's a complicated sort of thing. And I think there's still so many questions around how do they do this and how do they make it so or how do they do so so successfully and what will that look like in a changing environment as well um i'll add something to that just because these articles just came out so dr Colbert, my old um advisor at iowa state just sent these to me the other day actually it was on cnn and then another similar story in scientific american but a paper just came out um actually looking at the sort of rates at which which is a common green algae and lichens, the rates at which that can sort of adapt, if you will, to changing environments. And they did this large phylogenetic analysis, this big scientific analysis, and essentially they found that it takes thousands to millions of years to these algae to adapt to changing and new environments. And the implications that that has for lichens is that these lichens may also take thousands to millions of years to be able to adapt adapt to changing planets as well. And it's something that grows so slowly too. It's you know they just have they have a lot of reasons that make them very vulnerable to to a lot of the changes that are happening in our on our earth and in our planet. Um, and that being just sort of a more quantitative description of one as well. So uh it certainly highlights uh why we need to think about their conservation now, since we're, we're so far behind, even in, in relation to plants and other groups of organisms, where we have dated records that go back hundreds of years of what species boundaries look like and where you find these species. But we don't have a lot of that for lichens and fungi in general. So that's a new thing is this whole field of fungal and lichen conservation, really.
1: And there's such a sense of urgency now, as you said, because that we're so far behind the eight ball, we haven't really paid much attention to what's going on, and what their role is in the bigger picture, you know if when they are inevitably as everything will be affected um, so robustly by the climate crisis, uh you know what kinds of things will happen when they begin to you know shrink, disappear, whatever, you know we don't know what that connection is is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's one of those things too. as someone who who now has eyes trained to see lichens, uh, which I'll add is one of those things where if you think you're hearing this word for the first time and you think, wow, I don't think I've ever encountered a lichen in my life you see them there every day they're around you, right? If you've ever seen the trees turn sort of a greenish on their trunks after rain or in fog, that is all due to lichens. If you're from the Midwest and you've been cruising down a a gravel road or sort of a a back road and you see the tops of the wooden fence posts look like they're rusted almost that kind of orangey color that is all itty bitty, adorable little lichens that are there. So I encourage you to stop some time and go take a peek as closely as you can uh, to see what those look like. But so they're, yeah they're I mean they're they're everywhere here and I think it's one of those things that where we we're going to be even more so uh disappointed that we don't have the same kind of records and careful careful notes about these kind of organisms that we do for plants and animals and things because as as the planet continues to change and lichens are particularly vulnerable because they don't have certain structures like plants have to sort of house toxic chemicals that they that they interact with and keep them from um, going systematically through the through the plant body lichens just are absorbing everything that they are receiving moisture and anything that's dissolved in that moisture anything that deposits itself on that lichen it goes straight into the body of that lichen so they're particularly sensitive and that's exactly why we use them as Bio indicators of, of water and air quality that 's one of the things we 've been using them for but um, but the point that i 'm trying to, to sort of get to here is that like I think we 're going to look back and we will realize that we 've lost a lot of species and a lot of a critical component of ecosystems that we can never reverse it and go back and make collections or, or do studies on those kind of things or figure out what what those organisms need right it 's all going to be in retrospect and I think it's I think it's, you know, it's going to be a a heartbreaking sort of of back look.
0: For those of you just joining us, today is the monthly visit of Nan Calvert to The Morning Show. And our special guest is Kathleen Thompson from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she is a PhD student in botany. And as you have already heard, uh, an expert on, among other things, lichens. That's what we are exploring today. So Kathleen, you've already touched on the fact that that there is an amazing array of lichens. Uh, Can you give us a more kind of specific quantitative summary of just how many kinds of, different kinds of lichens we're talking about and also where they are? I mean, where do we see them? I mean, do we literally see them everywhere in in every habitat on earth?
2: Uh, Yes. Yes, actually that's an excellent point to make um, is that One of the most interesting things about lichens is that you can find them on essentially every terrestrial substrate on Earth and even a lot of aquatic environments as well, but really everywhere from the Arctic to tropical regions. So they are, you know, they are ubiquitous and there are certain species that are found almost globally around the globe. Um, or at least circumborally, you know, if they're kind of restricted by latitude, but they're found everywhere around that latitude. But then there are some that can be so endemic or so they only grow on one particular mountaintop, right, or something or one particular island. that They're just that's the only place you can find them. So they really cover the cover the entire entire gamut of what that can look like. Um, and that's why, you know, when we talk about their sort of function in ecosystems and things as well, too, is Is individually they may be small and slow growing and um and hard to sort of pinpoint exactly what they're doing or how they're contributing but when you consider that lichens as a general whole are covering a lot of substrates that wouldn't be suitable for most other forms of life right like even tree trunks like you can have plants that can grow up those but rock surfaces all of the rock surfaces that we have on earth like when you consider all of the lichens that are covering those which would be areas that other things couldn't grow, collectively, you have this really significant um, contribution to things like nutrient cycle or biogeochemical cycling. I'm sure people have heard the talk about like carbon storage and things, you know, those kind of more buzzwordy kind of things. And when you think about lichens, you tend to think small, maybe. But when you think on this scale of what they're actually covering on Earth, it can actually be a pretty large contribution, um, what they're doing to those kind of kind of things, especially in areas where there couldn't be something else that's really feeling that role.
1: You know, you mentioned all of the substrates on which lichens can flourish, rocks and tree trunks and and all of those things. I even have um, a gray colored lichen growing on some fencing that's essentially a plastic material. And it fascinates me that it can live there because I always thought, well, it has to be a tree trunk, a rock, an old wooden fence post, something of that nature. But now these seem to be flourishing just fine.
2: Absolutely. Excellent point, Nan, is that also they are they can grow on many man-made sub- substrates as well. So metal, oftentimes you'll see them growing on metal signs, which is kind of incredible because metals themselves can be pretty tough areas, you know, to grow. It's like really concentrated um, metal elements, right? Is, and like I said, is these lichens don't have much in the way of Keeping things out of their out of their bodies, so so they're I mean they're really incredible. As I'm highlighting that they're also these really sensitive organisms, but they can actually be incredibly robust. So you've, if you look this up online, you'll find more information about it. But a number of years ago, at this point, they actually took lichens into outer space and subjected them to like sort of the full range of UV radiation, the intense temperature changes of outer space, and all of these really harsh conditions. And they brought these lichens back to planet Earth. And I think there was a period where they weren't really photosynthesizing, the algae wasn't photosynthesizing. But after was it hours or days or something, they were back to full metabolic capacity, like nothing had happened. So it's, it is this kind of weird dichotomy of like, they're wildly resilient, yet also really sensitive to some of the to some of the the changes on Earth too. So it's kind of a mixed bag. And of course I need to highlight that I'm talking very generally about lichens, but that would be, it'd be the same thing as me trying to say something broadly about plants or about animals, right? Is that this is a a group of organisms that you can't always make good generalizations across an entire group. So, um, but the fact that a lot of them are sensitive, I think is something that's worth highlighting um, just because it does emphasize that urgency of, of doing something about it. And even, you know, even if that just means like, getting to know the lichens that are in your backyard, or, you know, um, and and developing an eye to see those and so that, so that you can even be seeing changes as
0: well. So are we talking about dozens of kinds of lichens or hundreds or thousands? I mean, how many, I suppose it would be species of lichens. What are we generally speaking talking about in terms of the range of that diversity that you were just talking about?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, a great question. So, um, goodness, I'd have to look up the number in terms of like global species of lichens, but I think, uh, and I should maybe double check, I think in, in North America, we have about like 4,000, 5,000 or so species of lichens. So, There's quite a few. um, And I, as I said, I should probably double check that remembering numbers isn't my strongest suit in many ways, but, um, but no, we're definitely talking more than dozens, more than hundreds of lichens. And really that number I imagine is in some serious flux uh, because just like with a lot of groups of organisms in the past is now that we have access to DNA information, we're finding out that something that we used to call one species is actually 16 different species or is actually, you know, and a lot of papers I remember when I was doing my master's, a lot of papers came out redescribing something that has been, you know, like a, a classic species name is now tossed into so many different ones or a, a genus, which is just like a, another kind of group of related organisms that becomes 10 different genera. And so as someone who was working with and writing, trying to write my, right. I would have to go back and change all of these names and figure out, you know, what it, but, you know, it's as frustrating as it was in certain aspects of that. It was so exciting though, to know that I was at this critical point in time where everything was in flux and we were learning so much about these kind of things. Um, and the same actually goes on the front of conservation. When I wrote my thesis in 2018 from Iowa state, there were 18 species or so on the IUCN red list listed as endangered, um, or at least as some kind of status uh, species. But I believe I was just talking with a friend, she gave a presentation for the Audubon Society on Fungal Conservation last night. um, And she was talking about the number of lichens that are on that list. And it's now over, I think 250 or something, which shows some pretty immense progress in the last couple of years.
1: So is, is there, about... for, for people such as myself, who uh, have now become intensely interested in lichens, <laughs> I feel like I've missed my calling. Um, <laughs> is, is there an identification guide, a field guide for novices who, who are out there and, oh my gosh, there's a lichen, which one is that one? Or are you writing that book, Kathleen?
2: <laughs> I I am not currently uh doing any writing of that. There is, I've used multiple guides in the past. Some of those are just available as as PDFs because usually they're very kind of site specific, like mm-hmm. lichens of the Ozarks or lichens of Minnesota or something. But there is, I've got it. This is is what the sort of um <laughs> i'm I'm holding up a a giant book here of hundreds of pages and it's you know a foot by a foot almost. Uh, this is sort of the the gold standard is this um this book by Erwin Brodo and Sharnoff and Sharnoff um, and you know it has a key in it that's been updated now uh, but this is if you are looking for a good like coffee table book too this the pictures in this are literally just so fantastic Um, but I have another a series of other ones but usually you know it's it's not like with plants or something where you could just find one easily for your area they're pretty specific and and kind of distributed around Um, so a little more challenging but it depends on what species you're looking at too some of the ones that you're finding in the the lichens to Ireland book are the same species that you're finding over here too at least as we know it right now
0: but
1: wow
0: thanks so Kathleen Does it make sense for us to talk about or think about the lifespan of a lichen? I mean, the same way that we certainly can talk about a plant germinating and growing and then at some point dying, uh, does it make sense for us to think of lichens in the same way? And uh, again, it's impossible to generalize with, with a kingdom that is so vast, but nevertheless, what are we talking about in terms of the lifespan of the typical lichen? And uh, and do some lichens just expire of natural causes of old age, if you will, versus are lichens killed by, by being eaten or by otherwise being destroyed by outside forces? Uh, help us understand the lifespan of the lichen.
1: Absolutely,
2: absolutely. And, you know, again, here, it probably varies based on on species. So there's certainly some nuance here, but lichens are really well known for living for a long time. So some of these like a particular species called Rhizocarpon geographicum has been used to date rocks. Um, So what they do is they know the growth rate of this particular lichen, like how, you know, how much it increases radially over some unit of time and they've been actually able to use that to say like okay this boulder here has been here for at least 2000 years or something and usually this is in the like many hundreds to thousands of years old so these lichens are still persisting there um and it's and it's very incredible. Um, You know, that would be a little bit different if you're talking about, you know, a different type of lichen in a way. So you mentioned something about like, are these lichens killed? Are they parasitized? Absolutely. Just like any other organism on earth, they are certainly subjected to all kinds of other competitive forces. Things are trying to eat them, even though they're trying to eat other things. Um, So there are other fungi in particular that can grow on lichens and eat them. Um, some of them actually kill the lichen. Some are probably similar to a, a parasite on us in a way, as they're kind of keeping the lichen alive but slowly sucking some of that the nutrients out of there. Um, they can be eaten by other things, other animals and organisms and such. So, certainly, little invertebrates like snails and all kinds of um, insects, in a way, do a lot of a lot of eating of lichens. Um, and it's thought that they probably are playing a big role in their spore dispersal as well, but that's certainly an area that needs a lot more looking at. Um, but even larger animals like caribou. Um, so these particular lichens can be uh, the major, like up to 90%, I think it is, of the of the food source of, of reindeer and caribou in the off season and like the winter season. Um, So those populations probably take a major hit at that point, even though our caribou populations aren't as large as they used to be. But I imagine when they were in full boom, those, you know, lichens were taking a very sort of seasonal, successional hit. Um, So yes, definitely. Um, They serve as a food source for many different organisms. They're also used for nesting and even camouflage. There are certain insects that will put little lichen propagules or little bits of lichen on their back to serve as camouflage as they're cruising up trees and things and other things can't you know don't see them as well because they look like they just blend right in with the rest of the lichens
1: yeah hummingbirds like to adorn their little nests with lichens
2: absolutely that's exactly the image that came to mind as well when i was talking about nesting material those those pictures are so cute Mm
1: -hmm.
0: do we eat lichens that is we humans is it is this a food source for us at all
2: It certainly has been historically, Um, and even today too, um, in certain, so if you were to go, if you got like a, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but if you got um, like a particular rice dish at an Indian restaurant called like Briyani, um, there's a a particular spice in there that actually is lichen, and you can buy that spice at um, grocery stores and things as well. Um, so it is used in some ways still today in food, but historically it was used as a survival food. Um, there's one called Satraria Icelandica that grows on the ground and it's really beautiful actually, but it used to be ground up and mixed into flowers to make flowers go a little bit further. Um, these ones called rock tripes, which are like umbilicarias and things, but, you know, they can be the size of dinner plates and they grow on rocks, but those have been used as a survival food in a way as, um, for explorers and such. But I think more culturally as well, uh, certain lichens were used in different foods. Um, I'm trying to remember, I think there's another one as well that's still used today in, in different, um, Dishes from Latin America and things as well, but I don't, I can't quite remember the exact name of that one. So, in short, yes, but it's not certainly not as common as other types of fungi or plants or animals and things.
0: So, I think one of the things I'm taking away from this conversation is that I certainly better understand why there are people like you studying lichens because it seems like it is this amazing life form that we are still coming to grips with, I mean, still understanding, um, what would be a couple of the greatest mysteries surrounding lichens or, or maybe unanswered questions that you and your colleagues are exploring?
2: Oh my goodness. That's such a good question. Um, and first of all, this conversation is so great because it's making me, like I said, the stuff I'm studying now is more non-lichenized fungi, which has been really fun. And I've, you know, enjoyed exploring sort of the realm of mycology, but this makes me just so nostalgic for um, having more lichen intensive conversations on a daily basis. Um, so you said, what are some of the, the biggest mysteries um, still around lichens? My goodness. Um, in many ways, I think some of the ones that are at least are coming to mind for me immediately. And I'm sure later I'll think of some that I'm like, oh, this is, this is even better. But I still think the lichen reproduction stuff is really interesting. Like how is it that they go about finding these suitable algal partners? How do they figure out if an algal partner is, is suitable for them? Um, We used to emphasize this duality of relationship where there's a single fungus and like a single species of green algae, and it's a very tight association and there can be no other partners, right? It's this very sort of monogamous thing. But what we actually find is that not only is it not a a single species of algae, oftentimes there's even completely unrelated algae in there, or sometimes there's algae and cyanobacteria in there, or sometimes it's a particular fungus that can associate with algae and look and act one way, or with cyanobacteria and look and act a completely different way. And we're finding out they're actually the same fungal species. Um, But in 2016, a really paradigm shifting paper came out where we actually found that not only is it a single species of fungi that comprise this lichen. There's actually in many sort of a second very important partner in there as well and the lichen itself won't really form without that. So that even sort of you know smashed kind of our concept of how we were explaining these in a way and then to find out there's even bacterial communities in them very much like how humans have bacterial communities in their guts or something but they have these bacterial communities that are doing all kinds of things. So I guess I, I almost jumped into a second one here. So first of all, it's, it's these questions around reproduction. As you can tell, I'm excited. There's so many questions. I think this is hard to pin down. Um, these questions about reproduction just cause I think understanding a life cycle of an organism seems so basic and it's like such a key thing of understanding an organism, but there's still so many questions around how fungi in general are, are doing this and how lichens are, um, we tend to have a very animal um, even human bias sort of look on some of these things and both fungi and lichens just seem to like smash those out of the water. And I think really just leave us in this spot of like, we don't even understand how this happens. So um, I think that's certainly one, but then also this other question of like, what are, what are lichens, right? Like what really constitutes this sort of composite organism? We, I think in our minds, we want to think about it as something simple And even even it being two organisms can be like, well, that seems different to us. But now that it's this almost, it's less of these like individual identities, it's more like they come together to create like more of a functional organism than they do even something that is around these identities of species in a way. I mean, that, I think the question for me around that is like, how should we be thinking differently about lichens, particularly when it comes to something like conserving them or protecting them or, or you know things around that front which can be so pressing is like how do we need to think differently about them than we do any other type of organism because they're so unique in this way
0: mm-hmm. um well and and the fact that lichens seem to be at at, at the core of their being well you use the word composite another word might be like cooperative uh or collaborative but i mean mm-hmm. it's it's in a sense, this way we should all be thinking about the way we live on the earth, uh, and and it's it's like they are this beautiful example of of what can happen when when one lives cooperatively or collaboratively.
2: Yeah, they certainly serve as these as these sort of like insights in a way to like mini ecosystems, right? Where you have lots of different. There's cooperation and there's conflict, perhaps, and there's all these kind of tensions going on, but it creates something that that functions and does its own, its own little thing, but also contributes to the larger sort of thing as well. So it's, I think it's really it's really wonderful. And for those of you, if you have access to a magnifying glass or anything that gives you even like slightly larger view, go out to the, to the nearest tree you can find, or um, even the sidewalk. If you see a sidewalk that's kind of speckled with colors, um, take, a look at, take a look at it. Um, because I think one of the most captivating things about lichens, despite all of this information that we're talking about here, is once you get a look at what these look like, it's just mind-blowing. Something that you thought was like a nondescript little stain on the sidewalk actually has all of this structure and can have beautiful colors in it, um, even if not on the outside. Sometimes you cut them open and sort of the inside layer is emerald green under a microscope. And I'd, I just, it's hard to even translate into words just how stunning they can be.
0: Wow. Well, you have certainly done a marvelous job of Celebrating the the wonders and the diversity of the world of lichens, and I'm so glad Nan Calvert came up with the brilliant idea of inviting you on the program. This has been absolutely fascinating, and uh, I have a feeling anybody who's listened to this conversation will think differently about lichens from this point on. I know that I will, and I will be uh, hungry to to learn much more. Kathleen Thompson, who is a PhD uh, botany student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It was wonderful to have you here today. Thank you so much.
2: Oh, it was, like I said, my pleasure. Truly um, honored to be here. And and thank you so much for giving me a platform to share some love for lichens. Yes,
0: this
1: was so much. Uh,
0: Of course. Thank you, Nan. Appreciate it. Nan Calvert, you have a couple of announcements uh, to share before we, we leave. I do.
1: I do have a couple of announcements. So, um... Many of our listeners are hip to the fact that just around the corner is maple sugaring season. And so what I want you to do is uh, go to your local nature center's website and find out when they're doing their maple sugaring celebrations. It's, uh, It's Wisconsin natural history right before your eyes. It's always a fun thing to do for families and people of all ages. Uh, Riverbend Nature Center and Hawthorne Hollow and Pringle Nature Center. All of them will have some sort of an observance classes, hikes, that sort of thing. So as we all know, the pandemic has been really hard on our nature centers, and uh, they certainly need your support um, as we slowly transition uh, out of this crazy time that we've been in. So March 22nd, this is very important, March 22nd is World Water Day. And all you need to do is Google World Water Day and it will come up and you can uh, learn about why this is important, why we have a World Water Day, what are the kinds of things places all over this globe are are, uh, are facing in terms of challenges for access to fresh water. It's really a fascinating thing. And hopefully it will uh, um, heighten your awareness of why it's so important. To protect and restore our watersheds. Going along with that, Root Pike Watershed Initiative Network is having a rain barrel sale fundraiser, and it goes live on World Water Day. And you can get the link that takes you to the place where you can order your rain barrel. Rain barrels are really important in water conservation by emailing Laura Buska, that's our communications coordinator, at laura at rootpikewind.org. Laura is L-A-U-R-A, laura at rootpikewind.org. And she can get you connected to that link so that when it goes live, you can order your rain barrel. It will be delivered directly to your door. Uh, Not only will you be helping to conserve and protect and restore our watersheds, uh, but you will also be supporting Root Pike Wind as well. Uh, so, yes, that's it. Those are my announcements.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Nan Calvert. Thanks again for the wonderful program today. We look forward to seeing you in March.
1: Yes, I will be here.